0: Welcome to the Stonebridge Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message by Pastor David Eldridge. Last week, the first of five controversy stories, Jesus heals a man who's paralyzed. That's not really controversial, it's just miraculous. But he also says your sins are forgiven, and that is controversial because only God can forgive sins, and that's true. So it's an indirect claim to divinity. The Pharisees pick up on that, that Jesus is claiming to do something that only God can do. It's a divine prerogative. And so that gets them thinking about him and questioning him. And he says really clearly, I want you all to know that I can do this, that I have the authority to forgive sins. And in this case, this man's paralysis is tied to his sins. So in saying your sins are forgiven, the man is healed and he gets up and he leaves. And so that's a demonstration of Jesus' authority to forgive sins. Sins And again, that causes a lot of raised eyebrows among the religious leaders because that's not what the Messiah, even if they believe Jesus is the Messiah, that's not what the Messiah does. He's, he's a man. He's certainly not someone who has the authority to forgive sins. Today, two more controversy stories. We'll read them um, in succession. First, starting in verse 13. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake, that's the Sea of Galilee. A large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him, and Levi got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed Jesus. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw Jesus eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous but sinners. So, two parts to this. First, Jesus calls Levi, he's also known as Matthew, uh, to, to follow him. And this looks just like his calling to Peter and Andrew and James and John. He's walking by the Sea of Galilee. He sees somebody working. He says, Follow me. And that guy leaves whatever he's doing and, and attaches himself to Jesus. That word follow is a technical word in Mark for apprenticing, just being saying, you're my master, you're my teacher, I'm going to be my student, I want to live my life like you do. I want to learn from you and be like you. That's what that word follow means. You, you already know that. And as far as we know, again, Mark doesn't give lots of details, there's not been any interaction between these two guys. Jesus just shows up and he says to Levi, come follow me and Levi Does One of the themes that we've seen throughout Mark up to this point is the authority of Jesus. He teaches in the synagogue. People are amazed at his authority. He drives a demon out of of someone and people are astonished at his authority. Last week we saw he says, I want you to know I've got the authority to forgive sins. And people are amazed at that as well. To me, this is really impressive as well. The personal authority of Jesus just to say to somebody, follow me. And they drop everything and do. They leave their family, they leave their job, and they, again, attach themselves to Jesus. And he is literally on the move. And so, follow is a very literal invitation. Start walking after me, walk with me as I'm doing this life and ministry. And they're all, people are doing that. This is the fifth person that we've seen. And he's from a very different walk of life than Peter and Andrew, James and John. And he attaches himself to Jesus, his authority, the personal authority that he has, we see continuing to come through. The controversy comes that night when there's a, there's a dinner party, Levi, and his invites his old friends to meet Jesus and Jesus' friends. So old friends and new friends, let's all get together and have dinner. It seems to be more like a dinner party than just dinner. And it causes some problems. The Pharisees and the religious leaders, they certainly would not have been at this dinner. But they hear about it. Capernaum, 1,500 people, word travels. Again, they probably have got Jesus' name written in their notebook. And they're kind of keeping an eye on him because of what he did with the paralytic. And so it's not unusual to think that they would hear what happened at Levi's house. And they're offended. And they want to know, why would you eat with people like that? Why would you do that? Like, I thought you were interested in the kingdom of God. That's what you said. This is the message. The kingdom of God is near. If you're interested in the kingdom of God, why would you be eating dinner with people who are, are, are opposed to the kingdom of God coming? Whether that's uh, direct or indirect, they're not helping matters. You're calling people to repent, and then look who you're choosing to hang out with. It doesn't make any sense to me. It's helpful for us to keep in mind the character's The Pharisees, there's a lot that we can say about them. It's easy to demonize them. They are Jesus' chief human antagonists in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But uh, this is a generalization. I'm sure there are exceptions. There's a lot that can be said about them. For us, the main thing is, is to recognize where their point of disagreement came. Jesus probably aligned with the Pharisees theologically more than any other religious group at the time. But their point of disagreement, major point of disagreement, had to do with the function of the law. So the the Pharisees were experts in the Old Testament law, but they weren't just theoreticians. They practiced. They were experts at following the law. They really were righteous. Paul, at one point, he was a Pharisee, said, I was faultless when it comes to keeping the law. And there's no reason to think he was lying about that. They were really, really good at following all of the rules. And they expected everybody else to do so as well. But then over time, what they had done, they and their predecessors, they created what was called a fence around the law. So you had the written law, and then they had created an oral law. And that oral law, again, I think it was the best of intentions. Their understanding was God will send the Messiah. God's going to fix things when we, are, when we as a nation keep the law better. And so that was their thing. Let's keep it better so God will rescue us. We're under this Roman oppression. We need the Messiah. We need God to work. So let's follow the rules. Let's, and in their mind, again, we're maintaining relationship. We're being faithful. We're being obedient. And they've got things from their past that they can point to and say, see what happens when we didn't. So again, with the, I think the best of intentions over time, people like me created some, some interpretations and some guidelines around the law. Don't work on Saturday. Well, let me tell you what work is. Because I don't want you to accidentally or unintentionally work. So they create 39 categories of work. Some of which we would say, yeah, that that is work. Others are things like writing, which maybe doesn't seem so much like work to us. You know, you could only walk this many steps, but not that many steps. It, It got super technical. It was very difficult for regular people to keep up with all of it. Very hard. You didn't just have the 613 laws in the Old Testament. You had this fence around it. The idea being, if you don't jump the fence, there's no way you're ever going to break the law. And that's where the Pharisees and Jesus really started butting heads. What he, what he called, the, the, the oral law, that's what they called it. What he called it was the tradition of the elders. And he didn't follow it. Regardless of its intention, he didn't follow it. He, he never sinned. He didn't break the written law of the Old Testament. But he regularly jumped over the fence that the Pharisees had erected. And it caused problems. They didn't get it. If you were serious about the kingdom coming and the kingdom comes when we as a nation are more righteous. And more righteous means we're following the law better. How can you do the things that you're doing? And it caused, again, initially there's disagreement. And then that, you know where it ends. It eventually ends on the cross. And so the fact that Jesus is eating with tax collectors, they don't get it. Tax collectors are despised. Everybody hates them. Not like you don't like the IRS. This is way worse than that. These guys, they're traitors. They're taking money from their brothers, fellow Jews, and they're giving that money to this pagan Gentile government that is oppressing them. And beyond that, they're thieves, the whole system is called tax farming, and so if I'm a tax collector, what I would do is I would bid to take up taxes in Marietta for the next year or to however long Rome said I could. And I would say, they would say, you got to collect $10,000, and I would say, okay, and I'd write them a check for $10,000, and they would give me power and authority to collect taxes in Marietta for that time period. And the way I make money is I collect more than that $10,000. If I come up short, I got to eat it. But everything I, I, I collect above 10000 I get to keep. It's a system that's ripe for fraud, for extortion. Greed obviously runs rampant. And again, it's not just, I'm not just asking you for money. I have genuine power to tax. I can demand from you and you have to give me taxes or I can take your stuff. They were hated. Again, not just because they were collaborating with this pagan government, but because they were robbing their own people. If you were a tax collector, you weren't allowed in the synagogue. You couldn't be a witness in in court because people assumed you were lying. If you were a beggar and a tax collector gave you money, you had to give it back because it was considered unclean. That's how low these guys are on the social ladder. Jesus calls one of them to be his disciples, and then he goes and hangs out with him and a group of people just like him. Tax collectors and sinners. When we say sinners, we all say, well, we've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the the glory of God. When a Pharisee says sinner, that's not what he means at all. He means somebody who's not following the law the way he is. And that could just be kind of a regular person who can't because they have a job. And they can't keep up with all the rules. It doesn't necessarily mean sin in the way that we mean it. And Jesus is choosing to eat with these people, eating being a sign of acceptance and friendship. And again, it doesn't compute for the Pharisees. And so they say to his followers, why are, y'all, why are you hanging out with these people? Jesus overhears it. And he says, it's not, the, he says I, 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 it's not the healthy people who need a doctor. It's the people who are sick. I've come not to call the righteous, but sinners. What he's saying, for a doctor to do his job, he's got to be around sick people. That's his job is to make sick people well. If he's only around people who are healthy, he can't work. And Jesus is saying, my, my mission is to call people like this to myself. It's to redeem them. And if I'm not around them, that can't happen. And again, for us, that's cliche. For them, that's a radical concept. For Pharisees, their name means separate. They've spent their whole life keeping everybody out who doesn't follow the law as well as them. Uncleanness is contagious. If you're unclean and you touch me, then I'm unclean. Going to the house of Levi makes Jesus unclean in their minds. He's in the house of an unclean person, so that makes him unclean. None of that is helping bring the kingdom of God, they would say. It's a radical understanding for them, a radical uh, re-understanding for them of, of what... God is doing if they can get their minds around it. And that next this next story shows they're really struggling to do that. Now, John's disciples, that's John the Baptist, we don't know anything about his disciples, and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours aren't? Jesus said, How can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he's with them? They can't, so long as they have him with them. But the time will come and the bridegroom will be taken from them, and on that day they'll fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, a new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine wine will burst the skins. Both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins. So John the Baptist has disciples again. We don't know much about them. But the Pharisees, we know, they fasted twice a week. They fasted on Monday and Thursday from sunup to sundown. We're in the middle of Lent. Many of you are fasting the voluntarily abstaining from food as a spiritual discipline. In the Old Testament, there's only one commanded fast, the Day of Atonement. It was 24 hours long, and it was specifically around repentance for sin. But by the time of Jesus, fasting had become a, a spiritual practice like it is for us. It was, it was, it was voluntary. Uh, but it was a sign of religious commitment and devotion, again, like it is for us. It was an aid to prayer like it is for us. It was a sign of repentance like it is for us. And the Pharisees, they, they fasted. And apparently John the Baptist's disciples did as well. And so some other guys are looking around and saying, well, the Pharisees are talking about the kingdom and John's talking about the kingdom and Jesus, you're talking about the kingdom. John, at least, is talking about repentance. You're talking about repentance. How come you're not doing the things that they do? They're fasting as a sign of repentance. They're fasting to show their desire and their desperation for the kingdom to come. You're talking about the same things. Why aren't you you doing that? Why aren't you fasting as well? And then the, the, the bumper sticker is Jesus says it's not appropriate. That's, that's really what he's saying. It's not the right time for that. It, it would be inappropriate to do that. Just like it's inappropriate to fast at a wedding, that's a time for celebration and feasting, it's inappropriate to fast now. A Jewish wedding is seven days long. You actually weren't allowed to fast during a Jewish wedding. One of the highlights is the, is the, the groom coming to the bride's house. And that's what Jesus is saying. The groom is here now. That's not the time to fast. It's a time to celebrate. And he gives these two quick parables, brief parables that say the same thing. If, if you've got a hole in your jeans and you're trying to patch the hole, you don't use a new patch. Because when you wash them, the new patch is going to shrink. It's going to make your, the hole in your jeans worse. It's counterproductive. The thing that you set out to do, you didn't do. You actually made things worse. If you've got new wine, you don't put it in an old wine skin that's brittle. Because new wine is fermenting still and so it's going to expand. You need to put it in a new wineskin that's flexible. Or else the thing that you intended to do, save your wine, you don't do because the skin bursts and you lose it. It's counterproductive. Both of those things, those things are inappropriate. Old, new patch on old clothes, new wine, old wineskins, that's inappropriate. Those things, it's, it's not necessarily that there's something wrong with the old in itself, it's just not appropriate for what you're, what you're intending to do. And Jesus is saying, this old form of understanding that you guys have, it's inappropriate for what God is doing now. He's doing something new through me. And the old forms, they just don't work. The, the Pharisees have a box labeled Messiah, and Jesus doesn't fit in it. And it's really hard for them at this point. And at this point, I think we can still give them the benefit of the doubt. It goes south really quick next week. But at this point, Give them the benefit of the doubt. Put yourself in their position. If you had spent your whole life studying this particular understanding of who the Messiah would be and what the Messiah would look like, and now there's this guy coming, and he doesn't fit, but he's he's healing people who are paralyzed, and he's driving demons out of people, and he's teaching in a way that you've never heard before. That creates a lot of cognitive dissonance for you. For me, it would. I wouldn't know, well, do I hold on to what I've always thought to be true and be faithful to that? Or do I embrace this new guy and and risk letting all of this go? What if he's a fraud? What if this isn't for real? What if this isn't the Lord? And we can look at it and go, how could you think that? Who else says to a paralyzed man, get up? But again, put yourself in their position. They don't know the rest of the story yet. And it's a real struggle for them. Again, giving them the benefit of the doubt. And what Jesus is trying to say to them, this is the third in five controversy stories. It's the center, three out of five. And so it, it's showing us this is the key issue. Here's the, root of the, here's the root of your conflict with me, Jesus is saying. What I'm doing is new. It doesn't fit in your preconceived ideas. It doesn't, I don't fit in your box. Is what he's saying. And again, for us, we would say, well, just throw the box away. When was the last time you threw away your own box? You don't do it, and neither do I. We love them. We're invested in them. We think they're the right thing. That's why we have them. None of us willingly are holding on to things that we believe are wrong. None of us are willingly holding on to things that we believe are untrue. We cling to those things because we think they're the right thing. We think there's truth. We think it's helpful. Put yourself in their spot. It's difficult. And I think Jesus, he's trying to lead them along. He loves them. He's wanting them to open their eyes. Again, many of them find it very difficult. You already know the end of the story. But at this point, he's he's trying. Can, Can you see this? That's why he's not just talking to them. He's also showing them. That's why he says to this guy who's paralyzed, your sins are forgiven so they can see. Look, I didn't just say your sins are forgiven. This guy who's been paralyzed is now walking. Something happened there but again, difficult. We got only a couple of minutes. Let's close with this. Prodigal son, you know the story. We kind of, I don't know if that first song that we sang is based on that, but it's a whole lot of the imagery from the prodigal son is in that first song, Homecoming, that we sang. Two sons, both sons are estranged from their father and that's the key to the story. We tend to focus on the younger son who's outwardly rebellious. He's wild. When we think sinner, we think him. Someone who demands their inheritance from their father, basically saying, I wish you were dead. That's what he's saying. Give me my money. I don't want relationship with you. He leaves, squanders it on wild living, whatever that means. And then he comes back. And on the way back, the father sees him and runs to him and embraces him and brings him into the house. That's the, when we think of sinner, that's what we think of. We think of the younger son. Those are the sick people who need a doctor. But there's another brother, and he's just as estranged from his father, although he's living physically in in much closer proximity. He's resentful of his father. He's outwardly compliant and obedient, but inwardly, he doesn't want a relationship with his dad either. What does he say when he finds out that his dad has thrown a welcome home party for his son? I've been slaving for you. Those aren't the words of a son, I've been slaving for you all of these years. You've never given me anything to have even a small party with my friends. And this son of yours who humiliated you and embarrassed you and took your money and squandered it, look what you're doing for him when he comes home. You remember at the end of the story, the older brother's still outside. He hadn't come in yet. He's sick too, he just doesn't realize it. It's important for us to know. Which one of those two brothers are you? When Jesus says the the healthy don't need a doctor, he's not saying there are people who are healthy who don't need a doctor. They're sick. They just don't know it yet. They're sick. They're, They're older brothers. Those are the Pharisees. Outwardly, like nobody's keeping the law better than them. Jesus actually doesn't criticize them for being unrighteous. When they talk about their righteousness, he never says, you're actually not. What he says is you've got to be more. That's what he says in the Sermon on the Mount. Your righteousness needs to exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees. They're just focused on externals. They think it's okay just to not kill anybody. What I'm saying is you can't call anybody a fool. I'm talking about heart posture, not just outward behavior. None of you have ever killed anybody that I know of. That's honestly easy. That's an easy command to never break. Don't kill somebody. As far as I know, none of you have ever robbed a bank. Again, pretty easy command not to break. What about not calling somebody a fool? What about not coveting what somebody else has? Jesus isn't saying that the Pharisees aren't righteous. He's just saying they're not righteous enough. They don't recognize their own sickness. They're older brothers who are outwardly compliant, but inwardly they're judgmental, they're self-righteous, they're hypercritical. Which brother are you? I'm an older brother all the way down the line. I know that about myself. Do you know what you are? It's important to know why, because that's the direction you're going to be tempted. Younger brothers, y'all are, you're tempted to sin with too much. It's excess. It's too much drinking. It's too much spending. It's too much fill in the blank. Older brothers, we're tempted towards those internal sins of the heart. Being self-righteous, being critical, being resentful, getting bit, all of those, keeping score, all of those kinds of things. It's easy for a younger brother to recognize, you know what? I'm a long way from my father's house. Remember, the younger brother goes a long way. He goes to a far country. It's easy for him to know that because they're so wild. They're not under any illusions that they're living righteously or they're in right relationship with God older brothers he was just in the backyard and he was doing what he was supposed to do he was working it's easy for us to lose sight of the fact that we're not in the house either and the father treats them both the same he runs out on the road to meet the younger brother he goes to the backyard to see the older brother in both cases the father's taking the initiative it's important for us not just to know which one we are. It's important for us to know what is Jesus asking of us. That's that second story that we looked at today. We don't just need to know if we see ourselves as the righteous or the unrighteous, the healthy or the sick, older brother or younger brother. It's also important to say, what's Jesus saying to you? And he's saying the same thing to all of us, which is follow me. That's, that's the only invitation ever, which implies repentance. To follow him means I can't keep walking in whatever direction I was. Again, easy for a younger brother. They know they weren't following Jesus. A lot harder for an older one. I think I am. Outwardly, I might be. And where's my heart in that? The invitation is always repent and believe. The invitation is always repent and relationship. The invitation is always come into the house from the prodigal son. That's what the father's always trying to do. I want to get you in the house. That's a sign of relationship, acceptance. That's what he's looking to do. We've got to admit we're out of the house before we can come into the house. We're going to close this morning with communion. And as we come forward for communion, I want you thinking about a couple of things. Am I older brother or younger brother? From our first story today, do I see myself as someone who's sick and needs a doctor? Or in my most honest moment, would I actually say, I'm actually pretty healthy? Both the Pharisees and the tax collectors need Jesus. They both do. Both the older brother and the younger brother need Jesus. The second thing is, do you you hear his invitation to you this morning to follow him? Do you recognize what he's, this new thing that he's wanting to do in your life? Are you willing to maybe examine your own box of what it means to follow him and set that aside? And I know you're you're highly invested in the box. It may be something that you've been building for for years, for decades even. Are you willing to say, is there anything in this that's old? It's not helpful anymore. It's not appropriate for what you're wanting to do in my life right now. And give him the opportunity to do that. Again, it's easy for us to throw rocks at the Pharisees and say, we would never do that except that we did it yesterday and we're doing it today and we'll probably do it tomorrow. So we're going to try this. So these are some slides. There's some confession slides. We use these at Ash Wednesday. I thought they were really good, so we're going to do it again. We'll see how it goes. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to say a prayer And then we're all going to stand and we're going to say these prayers out loud with with public confession. And again, as I was uh, putting them in, I was thinking in my mind like older brother, younger brother sins. That may not be a helpful um, paradigm for you. But really, again, just kind of thinking through, not just reading these things, but genuinely saying, Holy Spirit, convict me of the places where I'm falling short. Show me the places where maybe my understanding of what it means to follow you is not... It's not complete and it's not full. And we're done with that. Then we'll take communion will come up, lead us in worship. We'll have ministry teams up here. We'll pray with you about anything at all that you have going on and then, and then we'll dismiss. So if you guys would stand, I'm going to say a prayer and then we'll go through these corporate confessions together. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would come now and that you would open the eyes of our hearts. And you can just pray that in your own heart if you want him to. I pray that you would search us and know us. And again, you can pray that in your own heart if you're willing. We want to know, are there any offensive ways within us? God, on behalf of the older brothers in the room, I pray that you would show us the places where we're self-righteous, where we're hypercritical, where we're judgmental, where we're keeping score and saying, it's not fair. That's an older brother mantra. And God, for the younger brothers in the room who may think, I'm too far gone. I struggle with this sin too uh, consistently. I never can get on top of it. Would you show all of us, would you speak to all of us, grace and mercy? As we take communion, I pray we would be reminded of that song that we sang. Our scarlet sins. Have all been nailed to your rugged cross. And we can all be washed clean and white. So lead us through this time of confession Minister to us as we take communion, I pray. All right. We'll read these out loud together. For all our unfaithfulness and disobedience, for the pride, vanity, and hypocrisy of our lives, Lord, have mercy upon us. We'll take just a second so you can marinate on that. We may just want to ask the Lord to bring to mind specifics around those. Okay. For our self-pity and impatience and our envy of those we think more fortunate than ourselves, Lord, have mercy upon us. Okay. For our unrighteous anger, bitterness, and resentment, for all lies, gossip, and slander against our neighbors, Lord, have mercy upon us. for our sexual impurity, our exploitation of other people, and our failure to give of ourselves in love. Lord, have mercy upon us. Okay. For our self-indulgent appetites and ways, in our unchecked pursuit of worldly goods and comforts. Lord, have mercy upon us. For our dishonesty in daily life and work, our ingratitude for your gifts, and our failure to heed your call, Lord, have mercy upon us. Okay. For our blindness to human need and suffering and our indifference to injustice and cruelty, Lord, have mercy upon us. For all false judgments, for prejudice and contempt of others, and for all uncharitable thoughts towards our neighbors, Lord, have mercy upon us. For our negligence in prayer and worship, for our presumption and abuse of your means of grace, Lord, have mercy upon us. For seeking the praise of others rather than the approval of God, Lord, have mercy upon us. For our failure to commend the faith that is in us, Lord have mercy upon us. That's super specific, that thought may be helpful for us. So 1 John 1.9, you've confessed your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive you of your sins, to forgive me of my sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So that act of confession, that's, that's all that the Lord's looking for and he comes and he washes us again clean so that we're white as snow. So you come forward and take communion and you're doing that. Someone who's inside the house, you're doing that as a son or as a daughter, not someone who's trying to earn, not someone who's trying to prove, not someone who's trying to justify, or rationalize or minimize. You own your sin, the Lord forgives you of your sin and you're, and you're forgiven fully and completely. Thank you for listening to the Stonebridge Church Sermon of the Week.